Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Brittany Reeves of the Maud Howe Historical Combat School in Arizona. You can find them at swordfightaz.com. I'll put that link in the show notes, of course. Brittany is well known on the competition circuit, having won medals in all sorts of things, longsword competitions, cutting, wrestling, and other things. We'll get into that in the show, of course. She has a degree in ancient and medieval history and is, shall we say, becoming more and better known in the teaching circuit as well and has had the distinction of teaching at no lesser place than Sword Squatch, which is one of my favorite events on the planet. So without further ado, Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. It's nice to meet you. And tell us, where in the world are you? I am currently sitting in my kitchen in perfectly sunny Mesa, Arizona, which is just outside of the Phoenix area. Okay, so that's the AZ in the swordfightaz.com, I take it. It sure is, yeah. Okay, but you're not from there originally, correct? No, no, I am a I am a Canadian transplant. I was born in Calgary, Alberta, and was living in Vancouver, Canada before I moved here to Arizona. Okay, and okay, we have a, a disproportionate number of Canadians on the show so far. So you're you're in you're in should we say familiar company? Um, <laughs> so I, I imagine I know the answer to this question, but perhaps the listeners won't. How did you get started in historical martial arts? How did I? Yeah, it's it's sort of a an odd story, I guess, a little bit serendipitous. Um, when I was in Calgary, I was doing my undergrad at the University of Calgary, of all places. Um, and during my spring summer break, I had traveled to Vancouver to take on like a, an internship, like completely unrelated to my schooling or anything like that. It was just a summer, spring, summer job in Vancouver. So I'd gone to Vancouver. It was about 2011. And while I was there, I had gone to like a, a cultural festival, a civic mm -hmm. kind of festival. And there was a sword fighting group that was doing demonstrations. And I was like, what? This is a thing. You know, <laughs> the same reaction that everybody has the first time they see this, you know, sure. and it just seems so serendipitous that I was, you know, halfway into my medieval history degree. And now there's like sword fighting that I, I can do for a little bit while I'm in Vancouver. That just, it just blew my mind. So I, um, I approached them. They gave me a business card, and on the card it said one free class. And I was like, well, how can I okay. not? <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Like, I have no choice now. I mean, you know, twist my arm. And I'd gone in, and I did my first free intro crash course lesson. And I was just like, I was in. Like, yeah. just head first, no looking back, just dove right in, ate it up, loved it. And... I had then, I was only there for like the, the spring, summer. So come early September, I had to move back to Calgary to continue university. But I had maintained contact with that group. And then I think it was end of 2013 or very early 2014. It might have been December, or January sort of split there. I had gone back to Vancouver and I was like, Okay, I'm back. Can I rejoin your your stuff? Can I can I do the sword thing again? And they were like, "Yep." And that's that was really when I 
honestly like pursued it properly. You know, the first the first time was just a few a few months that I'd gone like a couple times a week for months and then kind of broke away from it. But I didn't really get a, a handle of like what the community was or like that there were tournaments or that it was a serious thing. And it wasn't until I moved back to Vancouver permanently. And then from there, you know, it, it was history, basically. So what took you back to Vancouver? Um, my father actually was living in Vancouver at the time. And I, I just, you know, you live in, I don't know, you probably don't know anything about Calgary. Most people don't because it's kind of a small city. No, I've, I've, <laughs> I've never been. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a small city. It's about a million people. It's big for Canada, but small for like right. most countries. Um, and it's in the middle of the prairies and it, it gets viciously cold in the winter, like right. minus, I've experienced minus 40 degrees. Like it is, it is. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I used to live in Finland and in Helsinki, it would sometimes get down to like minus 25 and that was cold enough. Minus 40. No, thank you very much. Yeah. It gets dry, cold, just bitter, yeah. bitter, bitter winters. And yeah. when I had gone to Vancouver, it was just like Vancouver is the most temperate place in the entire. It's so beautiful. And I just fell in yeah. love. And my dad was already living there. And I was like, I, OK, I'm 21 years old. I'm ready to, you know, take on the world. I'm moving. And I just got up and I just left. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, you know, it, it was it was a big change for me. I was young. I'd never lived away from from home before. And that was it. I just picked up and relocated to Vancouver. It was yeah, life changing. I, I can understand doing that. I love Vancouver. I, I've been there many times, and it's it's a, it's a city that if I had enough money, I could live in live there really happily. And that is part of the reason why I moved to Arizona, because okay. Vancouver is the most expensive place that you could be, and it broke my heart to leave, but it also mended my heart to move to Arizona. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so while you were in Vancouver, you were. Uh, swinging swords about um long swords and other things i understand so um you're you you got into the tournament side of things and i see on your bio you've you've won medals in all sorts of things so yeah. could you talk a little bit about sort of competition long sword cutting competitions all that sort of thing just take us through what you've actually done if, if that's okay sure yeah um where to where to start um my very, very first tournament, I think, mm -hmm. um, was January 2015 in Tacoma, Washington, like just, just outside of Seattle. And I was doing an open longsword, open synthetic beginners tournament. And that was my very first experience. I had, I had so much fun. It was awesome. People were cool. People were nice. I was, I was winning. I was losing. It was like, in emotional highs and lows. It was, it was awesome. Um, and then, you know, I, that just kind of progressed into a whole beast of its own, which I'm sure we'll get into eventually because there is, there's a lot of baggage to unpack there, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, feel, feel free. I mean, we're, we're here to, we're here to unpack. So, um. <laughs> Oh, my, my relationship with, with tournaments is, um, kind of, kind of thick it, it's it's uh, a mix of of, of emotions it, it was really it was good and it was really toxic but um yeah it was it was tough you get obsessive and then you have people pushing you really hard to perform and it was it was hard on me but 
I still did it. And I, and I competed in, in everything I could. Like at this point now, I think I've competed, not, not necessarily meddled in or, or made a top eight placement or impressively, you know, placed in anything. Sure. But I think I've competed in longsword, sword and buckler, single stick, rapier, saber, gleema, ringin, um, <laughs> like everything. I've, I've done it all. I'm not always good at all of it, but I've competed in, in almost everything. Sure. So ju- just, just for the benefit of um, the listeners who might not be familiar with some of the terms, a synthetic tournament is a tournament fought with um, non-steel, so plastic long swords. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So like okay. if you if anybody was to like go onto Purple Hearts website or um Black Fencer, they sell like nylon synthetic long swords and I don't I don't know the the beginners t- tournament scene just has this like absolute love affair for giving beginners synthetic swords which I okay. I don't necessarily agree with, but beginners tournaments are with synthetics a lot on the West Coast. So that's what I did and it's not until you get into like um open or like intermediate or advanced tournaments that they usually give you steel. I, I didn't really see the distinction, but that's where I started. <laughs> okay. And, and Gleamer. What is oh, Gleamer? Yeah. I realized that might be a little bit of a shadow term for a lot of people. Um, Gleema is just a, a Viking style of wrestling. It, it's actually, it's debated. It's not really Hema, like, because there's no, um, there's no historical sources or text sources for it. Um, and a lot of people consider Glima technically to have a living lineage. Um, I, I never really studied it too intensely, but um, I, I did practice it. I got thrown into a Glima tournament once. Well, a couple times after that, but my very first one is sort of a funny story, actually. So um, at the time, one of my coaches was Sean Franklin, who I adore. I just... For the record, if Sean ever hears this, he's one of my favorite people ever and definitely had a strong formative um, impact on, on my early martial arts career. But he was my coach at the time, and I was really struggling with tournament performance. I'd won a, I, I think I'd lost a, a, a bronze medal match just before, and I was really, really hard on myself. Like, why couldn't I win? And I should have done better. And I was just, yeah, it was bad. But he was like, Hey, um, I put you into Glima and I'm like, what, why? And he's like, you need to learn how to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I think, I think Sean Franklin and I would have quite a lot in common. Yeah. He's awesome. He, so he, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you can't set me up for failure. He's like, I'm not setting you up for failure. I'm setting you up to learn. You need to know right. that it's yeah. okay to lose. And, and then you need to know how to lose gracefully and with sportsmanship. And I was like, okay, Sean, whatever. And so I went into this Glima tournament with just the most resentment for Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I ended up if coming You never out, hate your coach. He's not doing his job properly. I, I know. He did. He was so good. He did such a good job. I came out of it with a bronze medal wow. and like this, this smug kind of like, hey, hey, I did it. Like I showed you. And he was like, there was six people in the tournament. You're middle of the road. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, oh, oh, okay. He's like, so you won some and you lost some. Like, congratulations. How does it feel? <laughs> and we, we had gone into a very long unpacking conversation of like the, the psychology 
around like my my tournament experience and it, it, it was funny it was a he was very smart i i didn't realize all the pieces on the chessboard that he had placed on there but he he knew what he was doing and it came out for the better so excellent so i mean clearly you tournaments have been extremely useful for you and the but there's i'm sensing some ambivalence um so what, what what would you what would you say has been like the the most useful thing you have gotten out of tournaments training for tournaments that sort of thing so that yeah there's a there's a lot to to provide for that question um okay i, I think in the long run now now that i've kind of come out of it having almost i think almost 10 years of just hema martial arts in general un, under my belt about maybe 5 years of tournament experience. Um, in hindsight, I learned a lot of lessons and, and more just about the value of tournaments and like why, why they're useful. Okay. And then in other ways, why they can be really toxic. Um, okay. but at the time, like going through the, the, through the motions of it, I didn't realize the lessons I was learning. Like all I could see oh. was the person on the other side of the ring and how I needed to beat them or suffer the consequences of losing, which is toxic, right? That's not a, that's not a good way to, no. to, to do anything. But in, in, in hindsight now, I look at it and I go, okay, the training that I put in for tournaments was good. I just, I didn't have a good mindset going into tournaments. If I had looked at it then, the way that I did now, like – when I when I go to fight tournaments now, it's very different. It's more like, okay, I've been working on these these three techniques for the last you know six months or so. I want to see if I can make them work with a non-compliant opponent, not right. a partner, sure. not someone who knows my tricks, not you know, is somebody who just doesn't want to let me do it. And and that's the point I think of tournaments is using it as a as a learning tool to sort of like test your ideas in a high stress situation in a way that you can't in, in the, in the sale or in the studio. Sure. But I mean, not everybody has really good coaches or a really supportive club environment to foster those feelings. And then in, right. instead you get the, the hyper focus on you need to win no matter what. And only, only winners are valuable in the community. And that that's obviously, you know, obviously problematic. Sure. Yes. Uh, I, I, th I think our views on tournaments pretty much align. I think they're a really useful part of a fencer's long-term education. And I would, I think most students ought to go through at least a period of doing tournaments because there are all sorts of things you can only really learn in a tournament. Um, but they do also have their downsides. But um, what, what, what are the main sort of things to imagine you have we have a listener who is thinking about going to their first tournament who maybe hasn't done tournaments before maybe it doesn't have necessarily a really uh, good coach who can prepare them for all this sort of thing um what would you say they should watch out for at a tournament what, what are the things to be careful of so i think you know the, the very first thing and this is something that a lot of people in hema really take for granted or don't even really realize read the rules like just, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times people have gone into a tournament, gotten upset about bad calls or, you know, not realize that something was legal and been unprepared for it. Like just, right. if you're going to go to a tournament, read the rules, understand them thoroughly. If you have questions, 
ask them, clarify them. And and that should be like before anything. Because I mean, I, I remember, um, and this has happened a couple times where tournaments have said, yes, this action is legal. It is allowed in our rule set. And then it, it's not normal. Like it, it's sort of maybe an experimental edition or, you know, they're one of the only clubs that do it and train it. So then you have people from outside come and compete. They don't realize that it's a legal move. It gets done to them and then they throw a fit. I I think I know the particular event you're talking about. Because <laughs> there, there was a little bit of a blow up a couple of years ago. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. And there was like, they, the organizers even went so far as to put videos on the internet showing these sorts of things and explaining that the point of this tournament rule set is to encourage this kind of play. Yes. And then everybody got super upset when somebody got it done to them. Yeah, I think I think there's sort of a, you know, I think everybody knows, everybody who competes knows that tournaments always have different rule sets. And that's sort of the, the fun thing about HEMA is it hasn't been streamlined and heavily regulated like other martial arts. Right. So you can it's go... Not an, it's not an Olympic sport, so there's, we're, not right. all, we're not all following the same rules. Exactly. And so there's, there's sort of a, a beauty in it, and it, it allows you to really test yourself under different rule sets and trying different sure. things and things that aren't necessarily made to benefit your style of fencing. And with that though, like we all seem to acknowledge that, but we all seem to forget to actually read the rules. And then we get upset when we don't like follow them. (laughs) 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 Like I remember for sword squatch, the first year I'd gone, I was teaching and then they, and and this was my own fault. um, They were like, Oh, did you want to consider competing? And this was literally 24 hours before the tournament. Did you want to consider competing so that you can round out the numbers to make even numbers for pools? And I was like, okay. huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't read the rules. I just, I just went in there and fought. Cause I was like, ah, it's West coast, whatever. I totally blanked on the fact that it was continuous fighting. Ah, okay. I was not prepared. <laughs> <laughs> But that, yeah, so if anybody's, like, considering to compete for the first time, just read the rules. And if, you know, if, if you're ever, like, not sure about something, always ask. Ask the director. Ask the organizer. You know, may, email them in advance, you know. Otherwise, yeah. just have fun. You know, don't go there to win. Tournaments are not about winning. Medals are mostly stupid. I say that with, like, air quotes. Um, just enjoy it. Enjoy it. Try and, like apply the things that you've learned or the things that your, your instructor has taught you or that you've taught yourself. And if it works, awesome. If it doesn't talk about it after with the person you fought, like, you know, tournaments don't have to be shitty. Sorry. Am I allowed to say that? Sorry. <laughs> you can say whatever the fuck you like on my show. <laughs> Very good. Okay. I don't have to worry. <laughs> okay. So, all right, so we have like, if we say Brittany's um, three bits of advice for uh, beginners going into tournaments is firstly, read the rules. Secondly, ask if you're unsure about anything. And thirdly, have fun. I think that's a really useful little kind of encapsulation of what they should do. But um, I know that there are going to be people listening to this who are very keen on tournament stuff and will want to know if you have any particular advice on winning tournaments. Oh, yeah. So if your whole goal is to win a tournament and it's not actually to like test out your stuff you're just there you don't care you're just there to win 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> just hit hard, hit fast, no mercy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, get good. Okay. Noob. <laughs> yep. Don't take yourself so seriously to like go into a tournament and be like, I need to win. Trust me. I had that mentality for years and it, it, it ruined it. It ruined everything for me. I had to unlearn a lot of behavior. So <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I often tell my students, you know, I have bled so you don't have to. So we could say that, you know, you, you have had a less than optimal um, attitude towards tournaments for a while. So people can just learn from your example and not repeat your mistakes. How about that? Yes, absolutely. And that is so true. Like we at Mordhow, I've got students who are really, really interested in competing and I have students who absolutely never want to, like they have no care for it at all. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. It's like, whatever your goals are, I'm going to help you do them. I'm going to do what I can as your instructor and give you what you need. And then, but when my students are really amped up about tournaments, I, I get hyped for them. I I'm excited for them sure. because I want them to have fun, but I always tell them like, Hey, if you win a medal, that's great. We'll go celebrate. If you yeah. place Fourth, if you lose your medal match, that's great. We'll go out. We'll go celebrate. If you are bottom of the pools and you just got in there and you fought, that's great. We'll go out and celebrate. Like, it doesn't matter. We just want you there. We just want you having fun. We're all adults who play with swords at the end of the day. Right. So. Yeah. And, you know, we, I've never organized like a, a formal tournament uh, of the sort you're describing, but we've used tournaments within my kind of larger school network uh, many times. And, um, Maybe one of the best tournament kind of structures we ever had was it, it didn't have this direct elimination thing. It was basically at the end of the day, because everyone was fighting everyone all the time. Um, it's sort of like pools. Um, at the end of the day, whoever had won the most fights won the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the, um, the choice of weapons was up to the combatants. And obviously, you know, when a relative beginner picked a dagger to go up against a Polaxe with he won enormous prestige <laughs> um, and then he astonished everyone by actually beating his opponent um, so he, he also actually won the, won the bout um, <laughs> but, but there were two prizes at the end of the day uh, one was for whoever's won the most fights and that went to a perfectly worthy and excellent um, fencer and the other one was by acclaim. So everyone present, including the spectators, got to vote for one competitor who they felt best represented the spirit of the art. And the the prize for the person who won the most fights was a paperback copy of my new book that had just come out. Mm-hmm. And the person who won by acclaim got the hardback. Ah, so the, Yeah, because... Because, you know, if you'd, if you'd gone into every fight and, like, deliberately chosen an inferior weapon, you're probably going to lose your fight. But you're, you're, you're looking for a harder fight. And that is the spirit of the art, as opposed to just, you know, doing what you need to do to win the match. Yeah. And, and don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not saying that all tournaments are stupid and people who try mm. to win are, like, you know. Uh, no, of course not. You know, there is there is a place for it. And I really do respect highly competitive HEMA and people who really do train 
to, to right. win and, and in earnest. And I mean in earnest because, I mean, I, I was part of that circuit. I still am. I mean, when I go and I fight, I, I'm still like, okay, I need to see that my stuff works. And therefore, if my stuff works, I win. Sure. Um, right. And if, nobody, if nobody's giving you that level of pushback, then right. it's not a very good testing environment. So, yes, right. yeah, I mean, again, and if anyone's listening who is thinking that I'm somehow critical of people who go into tournaments to win, not at all. Yeah, it's it is a perfectly good thing to do, and it's a very common stage in a fencer's career. Yeah, I, so, I think it's just it's it's a tool. It's another tool in in the right. grand scheme of of our practice and our study. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of like if you never spar, like sparring is another tool. If you if all you do is solo drills forever, how are you yeah. ever going to know? You know, but obviously, I mean, I'm sure everybody listening kind of has that idea of how <laughs> how people train martial arts. <laughs> well yeah well I'm, I'm sure they'll let me know by sending me an email to complain if they're not so that'll be fine. <laughs> um okay so you have quite a lot of experience in this so how would you say tournaments could be improved um what would make them better yeah so i think all of the things that that i think could be improved are are already sort of going down that path um i've always felt that tournaments would benefit from a little bit more professionalism and and that's not to say like more serious competitiveness um but just the way that they're run um you know staying on time (laughs) (laughs) um but those are those are the kind of things that like it'll it'll improve as the community grows and as the growing pains start lessening and we start figuring out more about how things work and how things don't work, I guess. But I mean, I'm actually, I'm really impressed right now with, with tournaments in general, maybe not for this year. Cause like barely any happened, but, um, in general, there's not really a whole lot I would change. I think it's all going in the right direction. I like it. I'm, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Maybe like, I would like to see more weapons get represented that aren't just longsword. And I'm saying that as like yes. a primarily longsword person. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> but I'm, I'm seeing that a lot more. I'm starting to see sword and buckler become like the new, the new trend, which is awesome. Um, I like sword and buckler a lot. <laughs> I've, I've done yeah, it for, for a good amount of time. So, you know, that's, that's really about it. I don't have a lot of complaints. I think all of the bad things have not all of the bad things have happened, but the bad things, the worst things that could happen have happened. And we've created rules and regulations around that. You know, we've solved a lot of the problems about bad judging or bias. I mean, you know, there are now things in place you get judge training or you have to, you know, there there are checks and balances and we've learned so much. And I I really don't have a lot of criticism in terms of like what, what needs to be fixed or changed. I think. Yeah. I, I remember what um, HEMA tournaments were like 20 years ago. Mm. And yes, they have come <laughs> a, a very, way. very, they have come a very, very, very long way. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Even, okay. even since I had started competing, which, you know, five years ago is not, is not that long, but even then it was acceptable for me to enter a longsword tournament with lacrosse gloves and Ikea cutting board plates put over it. Oh my God. Like okay. gear requirements were, were null, you know, like, and now it, it's different, right? So things have changed a lot. Or back when like, okay. um, 
you know, you didn't have to have, um, you could see people competing without back of the head protection, like overlays, right? Like, yeah. like, you know, things have changed a lot or, you know, you see instances where, uh, people make really bad judging calls because they're, you know, whatever reason. And now you see like, Oh, judge training is coming, is becoming a thing. And yeah. it, it's really interesting. Speaking of, of this topic, I'm currently, um, on the tournament coordinator team for combat con 2021. Oh, yeah, it's it's been fascinating. I've I've run a few events before, um, but nothing quite as big as Combat Con, which is a huge right. West Coast event. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've competed there for many years, and I've always been like on the judging side and the directing side, but I've never been like really behind the scenes on the actual organization of the event for something like Combat Con. And we're writing all the rules for tournaments right now, and. I can't, I can't really talk about what the tournament rules are right now because I'm not allowed to like, sure, of course. share them. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it is really interesting to see how much tournament rules have developed over so many years of like learning lessons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, well, because the rule creates a fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. If you want, if you, if you want the, the competitors to behave differently, you change the rules and then yeah. that changes the behavior. Yeah, yeah. Although I think I think Sean Franklin has a, a an article on Sword Stem, which if you don't know about his Sword Stem blog, check it out because it is okay it is good stuff. Um, but I think so. Listeners, that, I will I will I will look that up. Sword Stem, and I will put a link in the show notes. Yes, it's worth it. It's worth it if you're not familiar. It's okay. cool stuff. But I think he had done an article about how much do um, fencers behaviors change in different rule sets by looking at like the data that he's accumulated through HEMA scorecard and seeing if like targeting changes or like stuff like that, if point mm. values dictate different targets. And I think I'm, I might be wrong. Maybe I'm getting it opposite, but I'm pretty sure that it ended up being that people still fence the exact same. <laughs> really? Of the rule set. Yeah. Well, that's probably because <laughs> they're not reading the rules. Maybe, maybe. That's possible. Or they just, you know, their lizard brain, their muscle memory sets in and in the stress, yeah, okay. they just they fight the way they fight, you know? But Interesting. Yeah, I mean unless See, I would I would say I would say that that is a fault in their training. Because oh, if wow. you're training for a tournament, you ought to read the rules, figure out what's going to work in that rule set and then train to do that. See, some people would argue with that and go like, "Oh, that's gaming the rules though." <laughs> no, okay. Training for a rule set is bad. I don't disagree, by the way. I think that's right. No, <laughs> I, okay, okay. Here's the thing. If if you want to win tournaments, you have to read the rules and figure out what will work in those rules and then do that. If you want to use tournaments to test your current interpretation of something or whatever, then the rule set is it only really matters that you know what the rules are so you don't, you know, injure take, someone. Do foul shots or injure something. exactly. So that's that's a question more of like politeness um but yeah i mean nobody ever won an olympic gold medal in in fencing at least not in the last 40 years without without gaming the rules considerably yeah and that's and that is so that's true. just what I, I see i don't think that's wrong i think that's just that's that's you know are you are you a competitor or are you working on the spirit of the art it comes down to that yeah absolutely just, um, just being honest with ourselves about our goals sure. with how we want to train or practice our martial art and like are you are you using tournaments to play the game and win or are you you know using them to to test 
the the historical techniques that you're trying to learn. And I think it's okay to do both or one or the other. It's just, you know, be really honest about it and be forthcoming about it. And don't always like, don't judge people so hard for doing it differently than you. Right. Right. I think, I think that's sort of the, where a lot of the strife in the community comes from is people don't like how other people are training and it's like, I, I, yes, it's, yes. This is why I, I don't, go to social media at all these days for anything even vaguely sword related because it's like you know i do i do i do what i do and people who like my stuff you know buy my courses or read my books or train in my schools or whatever and Mm -hmm. that's fine and people who want to do different things or do things differently that's fine they can go somewhere else i don't mind yeah you know i i do my stuff for my people and they like it and that's good (laughs) pretty much (laughs) yeah um now you did bring up equipment so um and yes, we have seen equipment coming forward in leaps and bounds in the last 20 years or so. Um, do you have any particular thoughts on um, sort of how equipment is developing, what sort of equipment you'd like to see, uh, problems you've had getting equipment to fit, anything like that? Oh, yeah. I So I am so excited about how excited the community gets about new gear. <laughs> okay. Like, I don't know. I think I think it's so awesome that we're still at a point in in time within the HEMA community or the historical martial arts community as a whole where things are still developing. Like it, I I think we really like some of the newer people that are just kind of coming into it really take it for granted so much yeah. that we've put so many like trial and errors kind of like through this yeah. to find what we have, but we're still at that point. And and I think that's so fascinating to kind of look at how things change. And I, I get so excited. Like the Pro Gauntlet, I was so excited for. It, it doesn't fit me. It'll likely never fit me. My hands are like <laughs> tiny. I have like, yeah. I'm sure my cat's paws are bigger than my hands at this point. But, yeah. um, you know, none of it is ever going to fit me. But I think it's so cool that the HEMA community, or even, like I said, the, the sword community in general has sort of grown up so much that there is now room in it to start developing real, like actual stuff that is dedicated to what we do rather than like, Oh yeah, we're going to go buy lacrosse gloves and wear rollerblade pads and motocross knees. And yeah, it's awesome. I think it's so, so cool. It's such an exciting time to be doing what we do. Um, well, but I think my, like, my first, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh yeah. I was just gonna, my, my first plastron was cobbled together out of bits of carpet. Oh yeah. So, yeah. But that, that, that was, that was 30 years ago now. So, you know, things really have come on a long way. They've come, they've come a ways. Yeah. Um, I, I've always struggled with finding gear that fits me at all. Um, but I mean, I, I almost, I feel kind of guilty if I complain about it too much because I can't even really find clothes that fit me. So right. I, I'm sort of a weird, um, I'm, I'm really tall. Okay. No, I'm not. I'm not really tall. That's what I tell myself. I'm only about five foot six. I'm not super tall, but I'm not short. And I weigh about a hundred pounds, 110 after a good meal. Um, and I, and I'm just, I'm really slender. I'm, I'm really, really thin and finding gear is so difficult. If it fits like the length of my torso, it's too short for my arms or it's like too big in the waist or like, you know, my leg protection, it's like, if it's small enough to fit on my calves to like actually, um, Velcro it up, 
then it's too yeah. short and it's like kid size. So like I, right. I can never really complain about gear not fitting because that's just a reality. <laughs> right. You know, I, but, I, there, are, there are people doing something about that. For example, um, I had Lois Spangler on the show. Um, her yeah. episode will be coming out uh, in a few weeks time, but it'll be two weeks before this one goes live. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> she's been developing or helping to develop a, a fencing jacket that's actually shaped for women. That's wonderful. You know, yes. So there, there, there are people working on this stuff, but I guess part of the difficulty is getting a, without the equipment, the people who aren't the standard size that all the equipment is made for can't really get into this. But until people of different sizes get into this, there isn't a market to make the equipment for. So it's a it's a yeah. chicken and egg problem. It is. Um, it is. Um, I think, you know, I've been I've been lucky, though. Um, all of my gear for many years was basically secondhand. And it was always like so a guy had bought a custom jacket from Spez. And he was a smaller guy. He was about my height, but, you know, like 140 weight-ish, you know. Mm -hmm. And he does a custom jacket. And, of course, Spez doesn't do returns on custom. And it didn't fit him. So he was like, do you want it? And I tried it. And I was like, oh, it fits. (laughs) (laughs) So I never had to worry. But then I... um, for uh, the European games in Belarus, I was required to get a new jacket because my old jacket that I'd had for years finally got a, a hole in it. So it was no longer, um, right. it, it safe. wasn't safe, you know, um, the, yeah. the safety was compromised. So I had to get a new jacket and I ended up buying a Spez women's cut jacket and I love it. I love it. It's got like this cinch in the back so that it doesn't really matter if it's like too big in the waist. I just cinch it up. It's awesome. I love it. It's bomb. So having like a women's line of stuff is really nice because it, it didn't exist when I first started. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Excellent. Now, uh, well, speaking of women, um, you have a blog, Women of Hema. Um, I'll put links to it in the show notes. What made you want to start it and what have you learned since doing so? So what I've learned is to not use a hyper-encrypted email address with a super difficult password that doesn't have any retrieval because I have now locked myself out of the blog and that's why I haven't been able to update it for over a year. So oh, my God. Yeah. I, it, I was wondering. It, it's, it's very frustrating because I've got like a, a backlog of articles. I stopped kind of doing interviews after a little while um, and I started writing articles, which I was really proud of. Right. But then I couldn't get sure. them back on the blog because I couldn't get into the email address to get into the blog. It was very frustrating. So I've sort of been biding my time to launch it as a website. But I figured with the whole pandemic thing, everybody's like, oh, I'm doing this project, that project, this interview thing, this thing, that thing. And yeah. I'm like, well, this, this podcast, there you this go. podcast. Yeah. And a lot of people have started podcasts. So I was like, yeah. I'm going to just give it some more time. And I'll pick it up again because I think it's a really it's a it's a passion project for me. Um, but yeah, if I learned anything, it was stick with the email addresses and the passwords that you know. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that the um, that because it's hosted at WordPress. It is. I'm surprised that they can't get their their web support won't won't let you in the back end. So I used, um, I, I had made, because I when I first started the, the blog, 
this kind of goes into why I made it. But originally when I yeah, first started it, I, I kind of was like, you know what? I'm going to do it anonymously. And I'm just okay, going yeah. to put it out. So I had created a totally new email address with yep. a, a, a whatever host called Tutanota. And it's like hyper encrypted. And they even tell you, if you forget your password, we can't retrieve it. Right. But then when they request you to make a password, it, it has to be super, super like strong. So like uppercase, lowercase numbers and punctuation, but it can't be yeah, two yeah. double numbers. It's very, very, very complex. And of course I forgot it because I only use like two passwords for everything. I know it's sure. horrible. That's, you know, that, that's, on the wrist no, for that. that's no good. That's not I know. good. I know you can just, I get it. I know terrible and I'm ashamed, but you know, I'm a creature of habit. So I forgot the password for the email address. So when I, and of course I use the same password for the blog when I set it up. So I set up the blog, I go to go back into it and I'm like, okay, I've forgotten password. It's like, okay, we've sent a link to your email address. And I'm like, I don't know the email address password. So I'm stuck in a circle here. <laughs> okay. So that is a bit awkward. It is. It is very frustrating. But I'm gonna. I, I've decided. I'm just gonna relaunch it as a website and then re-upload all the original stuff. And it's probably better as a website. Anyway. Well, I was. I was. I was gonna say. What you mean is, um, like, get womenofhema.com, yeah. leave out the WordPress, and and just rebuild the whole thing from scratch. That that is probably the, the. Yeah. I mean, personally, I don't tend to use um, other people's internet pages for my work yeah i mean because because you know they only have to let's say let's say i spent the last eight years or whatever putting my blog on i don't know blogger you know the Mm -hmm. the google one then google decides that swords are evil and anyone with swords can't you know their blog gets taken down or put behind a put behind a, a age verification or something like that and that's it i'm screwed yeah so so I'm 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 very much in favor of have your own URL, have your own, um, you know, pay for your hosting, have have it all so that you own it, and it takes a court order for anybody to mess with it. Yeah, that yeah, <laughs> I agree. If I if I learned anything, it was just I should have you know done it done it the right way first. But you know, I wasn't really sure what when I first started it how it was going to be received. And I didn't want to put money into it if it was going to get, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, kiboshed right away. Um, and of course, now the original intentions that I had for it are different. And and when I go to relaunch it, I'm I'm sort of thinking about changing the scope of it because I've definitely my opinions have shifted a little bit. But okay. my original reasons for starting it were actually there's a few reasons, it, and it kind of goes back a long ways. Um, okay. There, there was an incident, I want to say in 2015, 16, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, okay. whatever. it was years ago. Um, and I was, I was still in Canada at the time. And there was an article going around on the internet about um, a woman winning a, a longsword tournament in. Oh, yeah. In Australia or New Zealand, New Zealand. Or, yeah, something. yeah. Um, I sorry uh, if I could just interject for a second. If you go to, I think episode three of this podcast, I actually interview the person concerned, Sam. Yeah, yeah. It, it, gosh, I mean, you know what? This is this is going to be 
a, a mildly emotional thing. I had listened to that podcast a, about a week ago and it broke okay. my heart because I, I have my own part in that story that I'm sure Sam has no idea of. And, and it was really, it was cathartic almost to listen to Sam's side of it. Um, because I, I'd never, I'd never met Sam, uh, had no connection to them at all. And for the first time, actually hearing Sam talk about it now with so many years since it happened, it was, it was an emotional moment for me. So this is, this is kind of what happened. <laughs> and the first sort of catalyst to like my idea for women of HEMA years before it was even a thing. Um, I was part of a club that um, attacked that article and, and Sam in particular. Now, when I say oh. I was part of, when I was part of the club, I, I didn't really know this was a thing. I didn't know it was happening until um, another woman had posted an, a, a, an open letter and was sharing it all over social media, which was basically a, a challenge to Sam and saying that, you know, uh, how childish. It, it was, it was awful. It was really awful. And I remember seeing it and I was like, kind of uncomfortable, but at the same time, I wasn't really, I wasn't as connected in the community as I am now. I didn't really know a lot of people. I hadn't gone out to the international scene very much. And I sort of just was like, Oh, okay. I mean, somebody's pretending to do sword stuff and that makes us look bad. Like, okay. Like I just kind of took, took their word for it, you know? Right. And, sure. So it's going around on Facebook, this open letter, not written by me, written by somebody else at my former club. And it was going around. And it, this is, this is so funny. My mom, bless my mom. She, she was very good. She was very supportive of my whole HEMA stuff. And so she would follow, you know, my Facebook okay. and the, that okay. Facebook. Yep. So she was very, she was very hip to what was going on always. Um, and she, kind of, you know, I talked to her that day. I talked to my mom every day. So she was like, Hey, what's going on with this open letter thing? And I was like, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, it's sort of weird. Cause like, apparently there's a person in Australia who won a tournament and I guess it wasn't really a real tournament, but like they're getting all this attention. So it makes other people look bad or something. And my mom like laughed and I'm like, what's so funny. And she's like, that's really mean. I was like, what? Yeah, exactly. What? what are you talking about? And she was like, Brittany, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a lesson. This is a life lesson and you will carry this for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay, mom. Again, I was a young woman at the time. I was in my very, very, very early twenties. And she's like, what do you think is more damaging for women in the community? Is it a woman tearing down another person for just doing their thing? Or is it that person getting attention? And mm, I like your mom. I love my mother. She's very smart. And it hit me. I was like, oh my gosh. I, I mean, you're right. This, this was a really awful thing. This was really shitty. And it, and it really, it carried for years because there was a lot of issues with women's HEMA that had come much later, especially kind of from that social group. Um, that I really struggled with personally, and I, I didn't agree with it. And I kind of came out of it 
when I had finally left, I I'd kind of separated from that club and I'd left and I, I was like, gosh, you know, I can't, you just can't tear down other people that, I mean, that, that, that doesn't do you any favors. It makes you look bad and it makes everybody else look bad. So, yeah. Well, and it's just mean. And it's I mean, just, it's just, I mean, at the very bottom, you're right at the very core of it. It's mean, but you know, the, when I, when I decided to do women of, of HEMA, I was like, I can, I can either, you know, try and be jealous of other people or tear other people down or be like, oh, this woman deserves recognition, but this one doesn't because she doesn't do it this way. Right. I was like, no, 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 no. My mom is right. Rising, rising tides lift all ships or some weird saying she gave me. I don't That's, know. I, I, I use that saying all the time. A rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. And, and she yeah. basically was like, you know, going out and winning medals, Brittany, is awesome. It's good. It shows that women can do this. She's like, but what good is it for women if you're the only one who gets seen? Because then you're, then you're a novelty. Then you're a sideshow. You're, you're, you're an exception. You're not like the other girls. So what are you doing to actually develop women's HEMA? What are you doing to bring other women up? Or are you just going to tear them down and write open letters challenging them? Oh, I love your mom. I think she's brilliant. Yeah, and it, it just it struck it struck me so uh, so deeply, and then it wasn't until a few years later I still carried that, and and I had made efforts since then to really be encouraging of other women and mm-hmm. always support women's tournaments and doing all these things, and it wasn't until I started doing women in Hema that I was like, holy dang, there are women out here doing awesome things and nobody's talking about it. Well, I'm gonna talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. You, you and me both. I mean, this one of the things that this podcast is about is getting people from different backgrounds and what have you. Mm-hmm. But I have a very strict, at least half of my guests are women. Right. Right. So, so I am like actually that's that's how I came across your um your Women of Humor blog. Mm. I, was, I was looking for women because you know in my bubble there are plenty of women doing sores. I mean, Jess Finley being an obvious example, Kaya Sadowski being another obvious example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people I know really well and, you know, they we've trained together and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but that's, and that's great, but there's also all of the, all this huge areas of sourcemanship where I don't really have any connection directly and I don't know the people. And so I actually have to kind of go looking for the right people to talk to. Yeah. And so actually your 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 um your Women of Hema blog was actually helpful with that. So yeah. thank you for that. Oh yeah. Um, there's, but a, it's, good, but it's, there's a good array of, of of good solid women in there right. that really do right. deserve so much respect and recognition. Um Right. And and they're not necessarily getting it. it right. And that, that was sort of what would always surprise me is like I would reach out to some of these women and be like, Hey, do you wanna do this thing for my blog? And they'd be like, Really? Me? And I'm like Yes, of yes, of course you. Like, what? What do you mean? Right. Oh well, I've never really been asked before. Well, right. That's okay. Right. We're gonna start changing that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I have a I have a I have a, a little um, just a, a, a bit of experience for you there. On, again, from this this podcast. Um, very many of the women who I've approached to come on the show have had exactly that reaction. Mm-hmm. Me, really? You yeah. women talk to me. Um, well, 
uh, okay, I suppose. Um, not a single one of the men have had that reaction. You, you know, that's so that's so funny because, like, I I think yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and say this in a way that doesn't sound super self-serving, but like, mm-hmm. I I've been very fortunate in the community that I have not had um, a lack of visibility. Uh, I, I get asked a lot to do things and participate in things and very, I I don't, I don't often have to submit instructor proposals anymore. I get asked to do interviews somewhat frequently. I've done like maybe four in the last, you know, year or so. And I've never really had that problem. Um, but I think, you know, a big thing is that I, I've always advocated for myself. And I think that's something that a lot of women maybe struggle with and they shouldn't. But like, if you have something to offer, put it out there. Don't don't wait for people to come to you. And like, I, I think it, it's something I've talked with other women before being like, oh, well, I was never asked this, but I should have. And it's like, well, you can't expect people to just know your name, you know. But at the same time, I understand the frustration when you've put out written material, you've won tournaments, you've started a school, you've coached students who win medals, you do all these things and still nobody knows your name. That's frustrating. And then at the same time, you have like guys who like win a tournament once and they're like the biggest name ever. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely like skewed, but I think women shouldn't be so hesitant to, um, advertise themselves to advocate for themselves if you've done cool stuff put it out there like throw it out there like just yeah, and I, submit I should also phone. say like a whole a whole bunch of men have contacted me sort of asking whether I would like me I, I would like to have them on the show yeah right not a single woman has yet contacted me to say do you know what guy I think I might be a good fit for your show here's why what do you think yeah right? oh, so I am I am fielding proposals from male instructors who are, you know, in every case so far would be an excellent person to have on the show. Right. Very right? So it's, 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 it's not, it's not like they're underqualified or anything. Right. It's just, it would be, it would really be make my life a lot easier if, <laughs> if the women had the same level of confidence and would just like, just drop me an email and say, actually guys, you know, what? I've done these various things. Here's my website or whatever. Um, you know, would you like to have me on the show? And, and women, if you're listening to this, <laughs> uh, I'm probably actually talking about you, so mm-hmm. please do feel free. And I hope Brittany will back me up when I say oh, I don't bite. Yeah, no, no biting, no biting. <laughs> so far, um, so yeah, far, <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, anything can happen. But you know, that that is the that is the thing. Is there is, and I don't know exclusively if if this is like a, a, a men versus women kind of issue versus um, you know when. And I learned this because when we had switched, when Mord Howe had switched to doing online during the whole coronavirus thing, um, I had sort of put out a really vague call for instructors just to teach online stuff as, you know, I'm like, hey, we're opening up online. I need some help. Is anybody interested in doing this? And if you just leave it out there, you just put it into the into the world without any kind of like specifics. You just kind of go, hey, Mm -hmm. open call, throw your stuff at me. Not as many people respond, but then when I approached people directly and I said, hey, do you want to do this thing? They were like, oh, yeah, that would be great. So I don't know if it's necessarily women or men or if it's more just like people in general being uncomfortable uh, with the possibility of rejection, of being told no 
And right. And I I stopped caring. <laughs> so I got very lucky. It's like I've put in so many stuff. Like I put stuff out there. I've had proposals rejected. I've had interview requests gone completely, like emails unread. I don't care anymore. Like <laughs> I stopped caring about people saying no to me and I just, you know, throw it at the wall and fortunately now most things stick. But it wasn't always like that, you know? Sure. So you know, people just, you know, put yourself out there. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? They say no and you just go about your day and go have dinner and whatever. Like, <laughs> you know, don't be scared. Yes, yes. But just simply the, the ability to deal with rejection is is a really useful life skill. Yeah, and it and it's hard. Is it? it is so hard. So, I remember, like, I put in a an instructor proposal for a HEMA event and I was like, I'm so going to get this. I know I'm going to get it because like I, I've, I've got the credentials, like more than even most men. I've got, I've got this stuff nailed down pretty good. And they didn't pick me. <laughs> oh. And I was like, shame on them. The fools. Yeah, dang. I was like, what? Why? And I was like, I was like kind of crushed for a couple, like couple minutes. And I'm like, oh, wait, you know what? that's okay. The person that they picked has never, has never really like had as much exposure. So this is probably good for them. And they probably will be better served than me. Like I kind of got over it, but it sucks. Being rejected sucks. It hurts and it's awful and you internalize it and you feel like you're never good enough and you never want to try again. And you just, you know, you get over it. <laughs> Wait, I, I guess, I guess it's like, it's like the whole tournament thing, you know, yep. um, you, you, you you put yourself out there so that you can l- learn to lose. Yes. Because when you, when you can tolerate failure at, at a higher level, then you can train faster and learn faster. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still, I mean, I'm not going to claim that I've gotten over it. I still, like, if I have a bad sparring day, I, I can still get upset. You know, I can still be frustrated and, and down on myself, and that's normal. But Sean Franklin was right so many years ago. It was just learning learning how to lose is probably just as important if not more important than learning how to win <laughs> yeah you know especially with something like sword fighting where it needs to be okay for you to fail it needs to be safe for you to fail absolutely so, yeah it, it, that was yeah one of the most formative things for me was Sean Franklin setting me up to lose <laughs> 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 well, if I ever meet Sean Franklin, I will shake him by the hand and say, oh, "Good yeah. job, sir." Oh, and he'll he'll um, know exactly what you're referring to. <laughs> sure. Okay, now we are running fairly close to time, so sure. I have a couple of questions that I like to finish up on. Um, the first is, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Wrote my book. Tell me more. I don't have much to tell. I um, I've been thinking about it for. Oh, maybe a year and a half, two years now. And what's the book? Oh, that's the problem. No. <laughs> um, ah, I sort of, okay. I flopped a little bit between ideas. I was going to consider. Uh, I've I've kind of dabbled in the idea of co-writing something with my husband, who is a, a HEMA name in his own right. He is mm-hmm. so he's got a lot of credentials to him and. We've considered writing a book for um, KDF interpretations, but I feel like now the last like 
six months or so, I decided, I think, I think I've kind of nailed it down. I just have to sort of, you know, start actually acting on it. I I really want to start looking at the sources through an art history lens. So, yeah, I feel like it's super under-researched. Yes, you're right. mm -hmm, So my university degree is ancient and medieval history, but my minor is art history. Ah, okay. And all of my medieval history was actually more of a art history slant for everything that I kind of researched. Um, So that's really my my forte. And so I really want to look at the German feck books and look at the artists behind them. And I haven't quite decided exactly the path, but I've started to do some research and it's really fascinating looking at um, some of the connections between someone like Albrecht Dürer or um, Jörg Bro, who's, who's the guy who um, illustrated um, Paulus Hector Mayer's manuscript. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. There, I mean, I, I just I could go on for a really long time, and I know we're not having a lot of time, so I won't get too deeply into it. But that's the thing is that I have not. Tell you what. Tell you what. In about in about six months' time. Mm. Um, if you have, if you, if you sort of develop this idea a little bit and you want to come on and just talk about the art history of the Fex Booker, I would be delighted to have you back on. I will because forever talk we, art history. Yeah, well, well okay, if, if I'd known that an hour ago, we would probably have spent the last hour talking about that instead of tournaments. Oh, sorry. So, so I, I think, I, no, 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 that's good. I, it, it just means you're, you're going to have to come back, I'm afraid. Oh, that's okay. I don't mind. I, <laughs> That is, that's my, my real, my real passion is I'm, before I did Hema, I was like art geek 5000. I was super into it. And that's why I really got into Hema was less for like the jock side, even though that's what I ended up doing. (laughs) I ended up being a sword jock. Originally, my intention was, oh my gosh, there are manuscripts that I can look at and I can dig into. And it was the art. It was the, the whole like art history of it that I was really fascinated with. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, um, good luck with the book. Um, Thank you. Uh, I'm, I hope you can, you know, master your thoughts, focus your energies and actually get it done. Cause that, that's definitely a book I would like to read. Oh yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm always really busy and it's one of those things. This is where I need to take my own advice and just put my stuff out there, but it is nerve wracking. Yes, <laughs> I'm nervous about it. It, it. Yeah, I got a little anxiety about it, but we'll see. It's it's a project that I'm sort of slowly working on and piecing together um, using Google Docs. So <laughs> it exists okay. in some form. <laughs> well, excellent. That's um. Well, I, I think there's 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 great potential there. And again, it's it's an aspect of historical martial arts that doesn't get a great deal of attention. It really and it would be doesn't. lovely. Yeah, it'd be lovely if there was there was more of it. I mean, it's not my area, but that's why I want other people whose area it is to write books about it so I can learn about it without having to do all the research myself from first principles. So yeah. yes. <laughs> For sure. So, okay. Okay. I actually you're you're not the only um guest we've had who's um the idea they haven't acted on yet is writing a book. So I am I'm sort of in the hopefully in the book midwifery trade here so ah okay well it'll be really it'll be really good if 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 i if i can encourage more of my guests to actually get their books out there you go. um 
Okay. Last question. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is literally the million dollar question. Yes. Somebody gives you a million bucks to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend the money? Oh well, um, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Selfishly, it would just be like I'm going to put it right into Mordhau Historical Combat and create the best sword fighting training facility in the entire world. But that's not the noble answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, no, it depends. It depends. If if your if your fantastically uh, excellent historical training facility is a place where people can come and do seminars and you can fly people in and do, you know, you know a, a, a training center. Again, you're not the first person on the blog to suggest building a training center. Um, sure. I guess really the, it's, it's noble if it helps other people. Oh, um, and yeah. the fact that it's in your, and the fact that it's in your own backyard is fine. It just means you oh. have a shorter commute. So yeah, uh, right. I mean, I was not as like, noble about it it was more just selfish but (laughs) if i if if it was to benefit the community as a whole i think what i'd really like to do is if i had a million dollars i could throw it at whatever i wanted um i think what i would want to really do is to procure some original manuscripts i know some places like have them but i would really like to get an actual like collection of them and and have them in sort of like a i don't know not like a museum but like i don't know something like that where it's available. A, dedica- a dedicated historical martial arts research center with the original yeah. manuscripts. Like a, like a preservation society or, or something, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if somebody had a HEMA Alliance membership or something or whatever. I don't know. Some kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can come here and look at the books, but wear gloves <laughs> in, a, in, mm-hmm. a, in a humidity controlled room. You know, something yeah. like that. But like. Someone like, I think, who is it? Brian Stokes. He's got like an incredible collection of manuscripts. And I'm like, so sure. damn, I, I want that. But like, so I can show my friends, but not just my friends, yeah. but like everybody. <laughs> well, I, I, I have, I have, um, an original Fabris and a 1568 Marozzo and a couple of other things in my house. And when, when my sword friends come to visit, I literally, I, I sit in an armchair and I put Fabris himself in their lap, and it is—it's an experience for them. Oh, that would be so, right. so cool! I it is. Oh, I'm jealous, and that—that's what I want. That's what I would want—is like to have easier access to original manuscripts, but in like you know, get all the proper like preservation techniques there, not yeah, just like of course. A free-for-all thrift bookstore, you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, a sort of a, a, a high-end um, sort of art library centre yeah. with with original manuscripts. You're going to need an awful lot more than a million dollars, I'm afraid. I realised that, but maybe like <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah, just yeah, a million dollars as like the startup <laughs> <Sure. laughs> to convince people to donate it more to it or something. I don't know. Excellent. Well, I, do you know what? I would, I would certainly, I would certainly come visit your center and spend a great deal of time, just um, carefully, not quite drooling over these manuscripts. Right. Yeah. With with like the little cotton gloves and, and yeah. 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 Because there, there is nothing quite like the real thing. Right. I wouldn't know. Facsimiles are great, but they are. <laughs> there is nothing like handling the real thing. See that that's the thing. I've never. I'm one of those people who's never seen uh, an original. Hema manuscript but when I was doing my 
medieval history undergrad, I was fortunate enough to be able to handle an original uh, Gutenberg Bible. And wow. yeah, it was, it was mind blowing. And like, if I could just have that, but with the, the, the emotional connection that I do with Hema, I think I just mind blown, but I'm, I'm one of the, I'm one of those people who's never had that yet. So I don't know. Well, Maybe one day. There, there are, well, if you ever get to Europe, let me know and I'll point you in the right direction. Well, I wish I'd known that when I was in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're just going to have to come back. I'm sorry. I, oh, what a shame. I can't imagine the, the <laughs> horror of having to go to Europe again. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking to me today, Brittany. It's been lovely to get to know you and to have you on the show. Um, we are sort of a little over time, but that's good. Um, so thanks. Thanks for coming along. And um, I hope I'll have you back on the show soon when you've written your book. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Brittany Reeves. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and join our growing army of enthusiastic sword guy supporters. Amongst other things, patrons get transcriptions of the show as they are produced, as well as the opportunity to pose questions to my guests and in general be part of the growing sword guy family. So please do join us. And remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from so that you won't miss an episode. Next week is with Damon Stith and we discuss his work on African martial arts. It's a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss it. So tune in next week. I'll see you there.